VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? We built an economy like that where financial engineering is the most valuable thing you can do. And, and that's where it kind of brings me back to Silicon Valley. I really do think that a huge number of Silicon Valley companies aren't really companies. They're financial instruments. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get to today's show, big news for me personally. I've been vaccinated. Huzzah! Um, for this show, I would argue that is also very a very good thing because it means that hopefully sometime soon, depending on how the rollout goes, of course, um, we might actually be able to start doing more interviews not over Zoom. I'm over it. I'm over talking to people uh, through screens. I want to sit across the table, talk to somebody, chop it up that way. Can't wait. Roll on vaccines for one and all. Anyhow, this week we have a DITV favorite on the show. Tim O'Reilly is here. And Tim, as of course you all know, he is something of an oracle out here in the valley. He uh, coined the term web 2.0 amongst many many other things he's the guy who sees around the corners before most other people do and whenever he does a big thing you know writes something big and interesting i like to have him on to talk about it um, because he's among the best uh, perhaps the best at kind of prognosticating about what happens next out here how it will shake out the winners the losers the dynamics all of that stuff and he recently published a piece titled the end of silicon valley as we know it with a question mark, not as a statement. But what he does is he lays out the state of the tech industry in 2020 and then goes on to explain why perhaps the next big waves of innovation won't be centered here, at least to the same degree they have in this last one. And this is due partly to just the life cycle of these big companies, where they've got to, how they're acting, the kind of the government backlash, antitrust, etc. But also just these, where these next big areas of op- opportunity will be, namely climate change, climate tech, and also just this melding of machine learning with biology and medicine and how that is going to play out. And one of the predictions he makes is that the next generation of billionaires is going to be made in climate as opposed to, say, software. And that is why Silicon Valley, perhaps, and the tech industry more broadly, might be kind of outside looking in as we move into these next phases of, of kind of innovation. As usual, Tim drops a whole bunch of pearls in there. I think you'll really dig it. Um, and you'll walk away with perhaps a different framing in your own mind of how you think about tech and Silicon Valley than when you walked in. So that's it. So I will now hand you over to Tim O'Reilly. He's the founder of O'Reilly Media and someone who certainly helps me, you know, just make sense of things. And I think he'll, he'll, hopefully he'll do the same for you. So enjoy. I wanted to have you back on because you wrote this 
provocatively titled piece, The End of Silicon Valley, as we know it. But, you know, it's a pretty deep and detailed discussion of uh, the world as you see it as we are in 2021. And I think it's it brings up a lot of the themes that we have been touching on in one way or another in this podcast and what we've been writing about, etc. But I was wondering, just before we dive into some of the detail, kind of why you wrote this and what the kind of the thrust is, and then we can get into some of the nitty gritty. You know, I guess it's just a continuation of a set of themes. I, I think I'm telling a big, complex story, which I'm I'm still figuring out, quite honestly. I don't, in a certain way, I think back uh, years ago when, in the early days of blogging, when Lisa Reichelt uh, said, uh, you know, blogging is narrating your work in public. And uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, that's, you know, what I'm doing. I'm, I'm sharing this set of things that I'm thinking about and, there's a set of intersecting themes and uh, you know, there's been a big part of what I've been working on for the last five years, which is this sort of idea of, you know, and and it's certainly relatively central to my, to my book, but you know, in in a lot of ways, the book had, you know, it was sort of like three books in one. It was Mm. a memoir of my time in the computer industry. It was a book about the rise of algorithmic uh, systems, you know, like Google and Facebook and how to think about them. And then it was also a book about the implications of that for social justice and the economy. Yeah. Right. Some, some small themes. <laughs> it, which is a, is a lot, you know, and I, yeah. I, I've often thought that I should have written a shorter, more focused book, which is just, you know, th- this central idea that I've been wrestling with is, and, and, and it's sort of been part of my learning curve is around economics. And, you know, this thing that uh, has really become pretty central for my concerns is that we have kind of a narrative about economies that the laws of economics are kind of like the laws of physics, or at least they're, they're natural laws in some sense. And there's this opportunity, you know, you know, like, like, you know, for example, you go, well, you can't do X, Y, Z because the market, you know, like, yeah. The, you know, the market will reject a higher minimum wage. And it's just, you know, like, no, you know, that's like saying, you know, the Facebook newsfeed will reject truth in favor of, uh, you know, you know, it's like, yeah. no, it's designed that way, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, th- that whole sense that the market is the result of design decisions is something that it seems to me is this wonderful moment as we're getting this focus on tech you know, and it's focused on antitrust, but it's focused in a lot of ways in the wrong way, mm. you know, because it's all about, well, we should break these people up. You know, we, we need to regulate them more. And it's like, no, you know, and I had this argument just the other day with not even an argument, this discussion with my, my son-in-law and he was, you know, he was on the, the old trip of the, you know, we need to abolish billionaires. And I'm like, no, you know, I mean, it's like, well, or, or, or it wasn't even that we should abolish billionaires. It's like, like, there's no moral way to be a billionaire. You should just give it away. And I said, look, right. you know, there would just be new ones because you have to fix the system. You know, again, there's a set of ideas that are uh, rattling around in my head. You know, everything from uh, every time I see Robert Reich or someone like him tweeting, you know, Jeff Bezos grew, you know, had made $90 billion, $75 billion during the pandemic. I go, you know, he's, he's mixing up two things. You know, it's like, uh, and therefore his workers should get paid more. And I go, right. no, those two things are completely disconnected. Not completely, yeah. but they're very only loosely connected because Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk made their money 
because people are betting on them. You know, it's basically they're taking that money from other rich people, not yeah. from um, from poor people. You know, Elon Musk has in the price of Tesla is fifteen hundred years of Tesla's profits. You know, it's not like uh, you know. <laughs> is, that, is that the actual calculation, or is that? <laughs> uh, it it goes somewhere again. It's I haven't checked like it recently. Uh, well, yeah. The point I actually last looked, it was fifty. It was it went from fifteen hundred and you know fifteen hundred and fifty years down to 1450 and now it's fallen more maybe it's 1300 but it's it's a lot a lot and amazon's up somewhere around 200 you know so you go you know like if jeff's wealth is based on 200 years worth of amazon profits there's no way that that you know it's just it's like it's not coming you know people have this imagination they just don't have the even the model when we talk about the market when we talk about financial markets versus you know what are actual marketplaces where people are transacting in the operating economy and they're completely disjoint and we don't have a language for that. Yeah. And, and so there's a certain way that I, I guess I'm out here kind of uh, thinking about economics and thinking about markets and somewhat with very much application to my own company because we run an online marketplace for content, you know, where we're trying to figure out algorithmic allocation of attention across the best content, just like Google is and Amazon is. But, but uh, you know, this has led me down the path into a theory of antitrust that's based on your ability to care, w- w- the requirement to care about your information suppliers. So before we get into that, just for people who haven't, who might not know you, how, how long have you been in the Valley writing about this stuff or in this, in, in the world, just so people kind of get some context? Uh, it's getting up there. I started my company in 1978, uh, in, uh, the Boston area as a tech writing consulting company. We were writing manuals for companies at the time, like digital equipment corporation and Hewlett Packard. And then we graduated. We kind of grew up with the computer industry. You know, uh, we, we kind of got into Unix very early on. And so we went a different path. We became a publisher right of computer books that led us down the path into online publishing uh we did our first you know ebooks which is actually a a hypercard uh product in in 1987 <laughs> uh we were pushing you know this whole idea we discovered the world wide web uh really as a way of, of of actually doing our books as as ebooks so you started this company a year after i was born so uh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> so 43, 43 years, and you've kind of been at the coalface one way or another in this kind of evolution of the tech industry. So one of the things that I think is interesting, especially given your very long and kind of deep understanding of the Valley, is this idea of incentives, which you touched on when we first started talking. And in the piece, you talk about, like, because you're kind of saying we're at a pretty sad point right now with Silicon Valley. And part of that is around incentives. And if you're talking about, you know, um, one of the predictions you make is that there will be more climate billionaires than there are tech billionaires in like the next wave. But that when it comes to climate and when it comes to life sciences um, and, you know, this melding of life sciences with AI and machine learning, these are the two huge areas that are just starting to pick up pace now and that Silicon Valley is still stuck in this loop of betting on consumer apps and kind of, as you call it, the betting economy. And it's kind of like a popularity contest. Who can become the next billionaire fastest to, you know, through 
addictive social media apps when really we should be looking over here. Well, and I think that's right. And I think the issue that I think is troublesome is that because of this disconnect between the operating economy and the betting economy, as I call it, mm -hmm. you know, it's possible to win enormous wealth without creating enormous value. In a lot of ways, it's not that dissimilar to, you know, the problems that we see, you know, with Facebook, you know, where, for example, misinformation or um, uh, just hype, you know, clickbait works better than normal information. That's yeah. a defective system, right? Yeah. And we have this thing where, you know, 80% of all IPOs in 2020 were for unprofitable companies. You know, so this idea that you can just grow, get lots of attention and everybody goes, oh, this is going to be the next big thing. You know, it's going to win the, win, win the popularity horse race. It's going to be the next thing that somebody's going to pay billions of dollars mm -hmm. for is sort of unmoored from the operating economy. And so it's really, you know, it means that entrepreneurial energy is misdirected. It means that investment dollars are misdirected. You know, when you kind of have, a, have an app like Clubhouse valued at a billion dollars, you know, <laughs> or Discord just got bought for $10 billion. Yeah. You know, you go, is that really? Um, and again, you know, I have, I have this odd set of conflicts in my mind about this. Mm. Because on the one hand, I go, you know, we need a, a big correction. You know, this is a bubble, a lot like the dot-com, you know, bubble, a lot like the Wall Street bubble in 2008, 2009. It's going to pop. But then there's another part of me that says, you know, part of what the pandemic has taught us is that money as we practice it is a fiction. We knew that. We knew it was a fiction, right? And when Amazon is, you know, well, let's go back to Tesla. When Tesla's worth, quote, worth a, a millennia and a half. Yeah, or more than any other car maker on the planet and produces less than 1%. Yeah. Well, more than all the other car makers on the planet. You know, you kind of go, that's just unmoored from, from reality. And it's just purely an indication of capital chasing big returns, you know, money being in invested in money. And so there's a big part of me that says, oh, you know, there's not actually a problem with that if we realize that our financial system is unmoored from, you know, because in fact, we are unmoored from, you know, we could produce anything we want for everybody. We just don't have a system that teaches us how to do that. Or incentivizes it, right? That, that's right. You know, so, you know, you know, we could suddenly say, oh, wait. If there's all that, quote, money floating around, you know, suddenly we go, oh, yeah, we can we can come up with, you know, one point seven trillion dollars for pandemic assistance. Now, that's actually not that all, all that much in the scheme of things when yeah. 30 trillion dollars of, of, you know, real estate wealth, which, again, is just like, what is it? What is it? It's like people betting up imaginary assets. You know, what's the mm -hmm. fundamental value of a house in a particular place? It's something we all agree on. And we've kind of gone far enough down this path of things are worth whatever people are willing to pay for them, that maybe we should just go forward and, and through that to going, oh, yeah, well, we can afford to do anything we want. So let's just figure out what we want <laughs> you know? and, and in a better way than we want some people to amass an enormous pile and other people to be poor. You know, we could imagine a better economy than that and we could just do it. 
you talk about like kind of the reckoning, the kind of inevitable reckoning that is coming. And this makes me think like when I first started my first job in journalism, I was covering the dot-com bust in 2000. And I remember talking to a lot of very smart bankers and venture capitalists who are like, you know, this it's just, you know, yeah, it's all about EBITDA and all these made up new numbers that kind of dress up what is otherwise a completely unsustainable business. And it's all about market share and penetration and finances don't matter so much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the whole edifice crumbles. And then you look back and you're like, of course, but in the moment, it's very, very difficult to pull apart all that and be like, you know what? Actually, everybody's crazy. Well, and, and, you know, there is sort of a question. The way it will probably happen is just like it happened in 2009. There's going to be people who are going to short some of this stuff and some of them are going to get really rich. And then, you know, but I, I, I do I do think that there's a, a way that um, I'm just trying to wrestle with two things. One is how do we get as a world invest in the right things? And to me, the right things are we solve real problems. Climate change and you, you, you point up climate change, which I think is really interesting, which I want to get to shortly. And then also, again, life sciences. Yeah, and I think, but I think that there's also just a fundamental distributional inequality problem, uh, which I think we have. And it comes from a flawed model of what prosperity really looks like. And, you know, the flawed model is, you know, we're going to get some people really, really rich and it will trickle down. And it's just not true. And, and, and it's not like it's completely false. You know, it is definitely true that capitalism and markets have made the world wealthier. But again, we have this mistaken equivalence between, you know, for example, uh, the trading economy and the financial economy where people can get rich simply by literally by doing nothing but being in the right place at the right time or doing arbitrage but you know and we have these amazing new tools that could and should allow us to build a better world and you know we're doubling down on some small class of people getting paid disproportionately huge amounts for the wrong reasons and that, as you say, creates really bad incentives. Uh, as I said the other day, somebody's asked me about, you know, the idealism of of the early, you know, Larry and Sergey, for example, you know, the early internet, the idealism of the early internet. And I said, look, we built a system that turns idealists into monopolists. And the system is one uh, that's driven largely by a financial system whose objective function, you know, like, again, I'm using the parallel here to Facebook, uh, you know, the objective function of Facebook is get people to spend more time with the service. And so that that logic led them down a path of showing more and more extreme content, because that turned out to be the most extreme, uh, you know, the most engaging. And, and I think in a similar way, we've kind of moved further and further from solving real problems because our objective function is, you know, grow, grow, grow. Uh, you know, you have to grow faster than the market and you'll get rewarded with these funny dollars that are not connected to the profits of your business. So build more things that just you know, are, look like cancers. And, and even in the real, even in what's you know, left of the operating economy, we have all these incentives for scale. And you, you kind of say, well, our, you know, our companies like, um, you know, a big, big box store is really better. Not sure they're objectively better in any, you know, in any serious way, you know, and they're hollowing out 
the real economy. And then we go, go, well, well I, I was thinking about this recently. I got a tour of, I don't want to say too much about this uh, because the, it's, it's sort of the person involved is probably under various kinds of, you know, disclosure things, but somebody who's running an Amazon delivery service provider. And it was just really interesting kind of understanding how Amazon is optimizing itself for its profits, which of course then drives its stock price. And it's doing all these optimizations on the back of people who really can't afford it. And in this case, they, it's not even their workers because they've outsourced, you know, and you look at that all through America, you know, I mean, yeah. a famous New York Times story from a few years ago, it was, it was called the tale of two janitors, you know, how the janitor at uh, Xerox rose to become the, the chief technology officer of the company and the janitor at Apple doesn't have that opportunity because they don't even work for Apple, you know, right. they've been outsourced through you know, to some company that gives them no benefits and pays them less. And, you know, as if Apple needs that extra margin. No, they don't. The only reason they need it is, you know, to drive up the stock price. Why do they need to drive up the stock price? Because the market tells them that's what you must do or we will punish you. Uh, you'll, you, you know, you're a CEO, you'll get thrown out if you don't do this. You know, and it leads to aberrations like, you know, I like to point out, you know, you know that Carl Icahn made as much money from Apple in his life as Steve Jobs did. They both made about $2 billion. You know, wow. Carl Icahn did it by buying some Apple stock at a time when Apple didn't need his money. They were they had hundreds of billions of dollars in cash. And he, he, he pressured them to do stock buybacks to drive up the stock price. And he walked away with another $2 billion. Right. He created no value at all. All he did was extract it. And, you know, and we built an economy like that where financial engineering is the most valuable thing you can do. And, and that's where it kind of brings me back to Silicon Valley. I really do think that a huge number of Silicon Valley companies aren't really companies. They're financial instruments. Do you think there's a culture change that has happened here? Because I, again, I grew up here and, you know, started out working here, et cetera, and then went away, came back. And in the time I was away, which was you know, early 2000s till four years ago, so a good 15 years, it had changed in some market ways. One of them being, it just feels like pre-2008, pre-crisis, there was a whole generation of young, smart, ambitious people who went to Wall Street because that is where yeah. you made the money. And then yeah. the crash happens. And then big tech, and then the whole tech industry has this amazing decade where these companies just grow to become, you know, now they're the four of the five biggest companies in the U.S., I think, or the yeah. tech companies. Five companies, 25% of the Fortune 500 value. Exactly. Or is that the Dow? I take it back. I can't remember. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And so it attracts those people who might have gone to Wall Street in a previous generation are now here. And then it, it feeds into that dynamic you're talking about of, you know, this is all about financial engineering, maximizing financial returns. And it's less about the holistic, you know, I want to make the world a better place. I just want to connect everybody, et cetera. Well, I, I think that's definitely true. But I don't think it has to do with people being less idealistic. They just don't know what idealism means anymore, you know, because what they see is you know, these are the rules of the game and I'm playing this game. You know, and I, I think about it just from my practical experience of it is when you talk to a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and you ask, uh, and this has been true for the last uh, four or five years at least, mm. you ask, how's your company doing? And they tell you, uh, we just did our B round. We yeah. just did our C round. We just raised, you know, uh, $20 million. You know, they tell, they talk about their financing. What would a typical answer have been, say, I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago? Oh, you know, um, I don't know. We sold, you know, like think back to the early PC, you know, we, we sold a million machines. Uh, we are, our, our, our software, you know, like if you had asked me, you know, how we were doing at O'Reilly, I would say, oh yeah, you know, we have the best books and they're the most, you know, they're the most popular, you know, like I used to measure things like, what was our title efficiency, you know, against our competitors? You know, how many, right. uh, how many titles did we have? Did it take for us to have an equivalent uh, amount of revenue of our competitors? They were all real world metrics about mm. the performance. And, you know, it's now really all about financial performance. And, mm. and I think this is, is tech has just sort of become financialized. It's not like tech made this up. It's just, no, it's, no. it's on steroids. And this kind of goes back to my thing about the next economy I like to compare a company like REI, you know, she's a, a consumer co-op with, say, a like-sized other sportswear company. Columbia Sportswear was the one I happened to pull out of a hat. Hmm. About the same size. They're both, you know, maybe $4 billion in revenue. And on every real-world operational metric, REI does better. You know, same-store sales are better. Uh, employees are paid more. People like the quality better. Hmm. You know, all, you go down the line. And the only thing on which they're not better is they don't have a stock price for people to value because they give right. them their, they don't have any profits because they give most of it back to the, their customers. And, you know, their CEO doesn't make as much money as a, a CEO of a public company, you know. And, you know, you look at that and you kind of go, it's actually from a, what we actually rationally want in the economy. REI is a better model mm. than Columbia Sportswear. And yet our tax code, which is like the code that runs the Facebook news feed, says, oh, no, 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 no. You can't optimize for those human things. Yeah. You have to optimize for this thing that the machine wants. The machine wants higher stock prices. And the driver of higher stock prices is uh, higher profits is the idea that you're going to build a monopoly. And of course, that's where Silicon Valley became so attractive because it's a monopoly machine. 
and and that kind of goes to another point that I've made, which is that it, and this is why I feel like it's it's really it's broken the natural market in the sense that the VCs now pick the winners. You know, so very small number of people, you know, and, and I think- I mean, are you, know, you talking about like the soft bank model? Like we're just going to give you more money than anybody else can possibly hope? That, that's right. And there's a few, you know, Uber and Lyft are a good example. Uh, WeWork was a good example. You know, they literally drove other companies out of the market because they had so much capital. You know, there were a lot of startups that were doing innovation in office space and they could not afford to keep up with WeWork, You're which right. didn't actually work, right? <laughs> it just was a financial instrument that was trying to exit before everybody figured it out. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of a, 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 a it's a version of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, I, I think, you know, Uber and, and Lyft are not so bad, but they basically, you know, I, I think it's so interesting, you know, when I, if you kind of do the counterfactual and ask yourself, what would have happened if there was not so much capital available? It would have probably been a lot like the early web, you know, in which nobody knew it was going to win. There was small amounts of capital deployed lots and lots of ways. Yeah. And eventually some people figured some things out, you know, and we did eventually get to monopolies, you know, in the form of, of, of Google and so on. But, you know, they were not actually in the first generation. And then you look at, you know, again, the, the car sharing and you go, okay, so turns out Sunil Paul, who kind of invented the model that made Uber and Lyft, I mean, I have to say, um, uh, you know, Logan and John at Lyft were, you know, also in that mix, that yeah. early mix of inventing it. But but Uber really wasn't, you know, the, Travis and, and uh, Garrett kind of were doing something that I don't think was, it certainly was not the thing that became, you know, uh, but but they got the most money. But but so, so interesting is that uh, Sunil Paul, Paul's uh, sidecar raised about the same amount that Google did. But he, you know, Uber and Lyft raised billions and he had 35 million and, you know, went out of business. But what would have happened? We would have had lots of small local car sharing places that mm. would have been competing. They were, Some of them would have paid their drivers more. Some of them would have, you know, had higher prices for passengers. But we would have actually had a lot of experiments that found, you know, in the way that the market is good at. You know, when I say right. the market, the, the true free market, free from, uh, which Mariana Mazzucato likes to point out is, the free market is not free from government intervention. It's free from economic rents, you yeah. know, which is what Adam Smith meant when he said the free market. Yeah. And instead, we built a market that is not free. It's a market that's based on economic rents. That, like, yeah. it, we will give you money so that you can build a monopoly, so that you can extract economic rents, and we will subsidize you selling things below cost until such time as you have the monopoly. And that's. Not a very healthy market, quite honestly. And what's really interesting is that one of the things you bring up in the piece, which again, of course, we're talking about this on the podcast, but you, everybody should go read it. It's really interesting. Is this idea around one of the big next waves of innovation is going to be come from this marrying of biology slash medicine and machine learning. And just the brute force that that machine learning can apply to these very complex biological problems and that silicon valley in particular because you're, you're just talking about that model where it's you know who can fund who can throw most the most money at a popularity contest right that doesn't really work with science it's absolutely right i mean if somebody said i forget who, whose formulation this is but that you know the typical silicon valley model is 
the technology risk is low. Uh, the market risk is high, you know, and, and, and mm. they figured out that you can deploy enough capital to cover the market risk. You know, in deep tech, the technology risk is high. The market risk is low. I mean, if yeah. you could, de- you know, like if you could develop the COVID vaccine, you had a guaranteed market. You know, <laughs> and, and so it was all technology risk. And, and I think that's actually, you know, it's an inversion of the typical Silicon Valley model because you've actually got to bet on something that's unproven that you cannot buy success if you can get enough. Right. And the same applies to climate tech, right? I mean, it's the same yeah. thing. It's, it's this, these kind of deep tech problems. So what does that, so you started out talking about, you know, and we, we wrote something around this time as well when it was like, Elon Musk was leaving California. Keith Raboy, these big companies were leaving, et cetera. And everybody's like, California sucks. Nothing here works. California sucks. Silicon Valley sucks. It all sucks. We're leaving. What do you think happens here? Especially when you're talking about like, there's going to be a reckoning. You have some people leaving. There's these huge opportunities that perhaps do not sit well with what Silicon Valley has perfected over these last 10, 15 years. How do you see that all playing out? Well, uh, there's sort of a variety of ways that it plays out. And one of them, I think, is that, you know, it's not a doom and gloom scenario for Silicon Valley. I'm not at all saying Silicon Valley is going to go belly up. Yeah. I'm just saying that there's a set of new opportunities that are very large that are not well suited to Silicon Valley. And, you know, again, I just was doing, I, you know, I call it four reasons why the party may be mm. coming to an end. And, you know, the four reasons were one, you know, bio isn't our strong suit. There are other centers where there's more of the kind of, you know, technology knowledge that, uh, you know, is required. It's not completely absent here. There's some, you know, great stuff, uh, yeah. you know, Berkeley, Stanford and so on. But it's also not, doesn't lend itself to the, the facile, Silicon Valley investment style either. Uh, you know, it's a lot harder to invest in things where you have, you know, to be deeply knowledgeable about the subject. You know, this is yeah. why Theranos was sort of a good, uh, you know, this is, this, this is uh, what investors who thought they were smart when they were only lucky do uh, when they're out of their depth. You know? <laughs> but also just, you know, you just look at, okay, so here's this technological innovation that was required to come up with the COVID vaccine. And, you know, pretty big financial stakes in the real economy. Yeah. You know, and you just look and go, the Silicon Valley, you know, quote, innovation economy has really nothing to offer to that. Mm. That's not to say that there's been stuff that came out of Silicon Valley that was incredibly useful. I, you know, some of the artificial intelligence work that was pioneered here, but it's going to be applied into very different fields in very different ways. And the typical, you know, young entrepreneur, who's in Y Combinator is not necessarily going to be the right fit for those kinds of problems. And again, I, some of them will make the transition just like they always have. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the consumer internet industry will still exist. I think it will just stop being the epicenter of what everybody thinks is interesting. Right. And, you know, and, and I, I guess I'm also very much shaped and, you know, I, I talked the four reasons. The first one was the biomedical uh, issue. The second one you know, is that, you know, climate change is a real and urgent threat. And, you know, it requires a very different kind of investment. And it potentially is going to soak up capital, which has been really just floating around in this sort of crazy ass betting, you know, crap shoot game that Silicon <laughs> Valley has become. 
And, you know, a lot of people think that this, you know, this particular bubble is the, you know, the creation of cheap capital and, and you know, the Fed, you know, quantitative easing and keeping interest rates super low. And so capital is chasing outsized returns. And, yeah. you know, and the only way you can do that is by these crazy ass bets. And, you know, so people are effectively betting up tulips, you know, in some sense, there's both a huge opportunity in climate change, but there's also going to be a huge diversion of capital from, you know, building another social network, right? you know, um, or whatever it might be. And in some ways, these things are, they actually need capital. Because right now, you know, you think about something like, you know, Discord or Clubhouse, Clubhouse. it didn't need a whole lot of capital, right? So then all of a sudden, there's all this capital that got, handed to these founders and then they want to go invest it somewhere. And it's sort of like, so, so there's, there's this free floating liquidity. Mm. I think I read a quote by Charlie Munger recently said, you know, a, a small amount of liquidity is very good for society. A large amount of liquidity brings out the worst in people. You know? right. <laughs> and um, climate change, I think will soak up a lot of that liquidity because suddenly you're going to, you know, again, this is, I'm, I'm not talking about, next year i'm not talking about next five years but over the next few decades we're gonna we're either going to basically spend a shit ton of money on climate remediation or we're going to be going downhill fast and there'll be no money to spend on silicon valley for that reason either you know (laughs) and so i'm i'm hoping we will uh you know get our act together and invest in things that matter. But I, I, I guess then the, the fourth one, you know, we've talked a lot about the one about the bubble economy, yeah. but I think there's also this aspect of, of regulation coming to the internet. Yes. yes. And the regulation is there partly, I think, because of the bubble economy, because of this imperative, you must keep growing and yep. you must keep pursuing monopoly. And at some point you get a backlash. Yep. And it kind of goes back to something I remember Walt Mossberg told me about a conversation he had with uh, Steve Ballmer back in the days when Microsoft was in the crosshairs. And he, Walt said to me, he said, I told him, Steve, if you guys would just be maybe 1% less greedy, it would, you know, everybody would like you a lot more. <laughs> you know? And you do look at, at some of these companies and you go, at what point do you go, oh, wait, we don't really need more. We need to yeah. leave more on the table. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I just did a piece last week on Amazon and how they treat third-party sellers. And I was talking to this guy who used to sell his, he sold like kind of shoes on the marketplace. Um, he sells about half a million dollars to shoes a year. And he just moved everything from Amazon to eBay two years ago because he was just like, it was so brutal. He was like, because some people had figured out how to game the system where he would send them a $200 pair of shoes that they, they would buy. They'd write back and be like, um... These don't fit. Then they'll send back a box of garbage that weighed the same amount as his shoes. And in the system that is seen as like three pounds going out, three pounds coming back in, automatic refund. And then he is forced to open up an appeal process that will take months that he always lost. And he's like, I was losing $20,000 regularly on just returned items people would send back old shoes etc and it was just like there was no it was all just about kind of fleecing us to please a customer and it was just like this is this is bad business so eventually left wow you wrote this up in in an article can you send me a link i will i will yeah very interesting 
Yeah, that 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 matches my my sense. It's sort of like these algorithmic optimizations. Yeah, that don't add up and that don't spend they don't spend enough time thinking. You know, this is the thing that I I'm really obsessed with, which is that we have these systems that we now have the demonstrated ability to take more and more factors into account. That's why mm-hmm. I'm so, I was so in love with Google in its first 10, 15 yeah. years. You know, it's like we're building a system that takes hundreds of factors into account to come up with the best results. And then gradually they move away from that mm. in, in small ways that they don't fully understand. Amazon, same thing. You know, back yep. when I first started writing about them in the, you know, my early Web 2.0 stuff, it was like they used all this signal to say this is the best product for what you're looking for and now the page is all ads and they have this fast-growing ad business you know and it's again a mistake long-term survival mistake for these companies you know kind of like the mistake that microsoft made that walt was trying to tell steve about you know like you're optimizing the wrong thing you know you're basically saying yeah we will make ourselves more profitable but who are you hurting and eventually the people who you're hurting are going to come after you. And of course, that's our economy writ large. I mean, that's the fundamental problem with inequality. At some point, you know, people turn on, you know, and it's kind of funny when I look back on the history of the French Revolution, I often think about the fact that some of the first aristocrats to be murdered were, in fact, people who were, were trying to do the right thing. You know, they weren't, it wasn't just the, the, the worst people went to the guillotine first. <laughs> it's, it was some of the best, you know? And that's what's really interesting is like, uh, you know, the software is eating the world thing that Mark Andreessen wrote seems to be like, you know, that's a little bit of a signpost. And then they wrote, I think it was last year, it's time to build. Kind of touching on some of your themes. And then, of course, the joke was that, you know, the first deal they did after that was invest in Clubhouse. Right. I guess the question of, again, just how suited Silicon Valley is to do something, you know, is it a one trick pony to a degree? And I think that's what's really interesting, especially as you say, we start facing some solving some of these bigger problems, which require a different type of investing and a different level of money. Right. And there are definitely firms that are going and investing in deep tech, that are going and investing in climate. And so I think there's a, a turn there. And, and of course, there's a certain way that if you're an investor, it's rational to keep betting until it stops working. You know, I mean, I, I, and that's why, again, when I think about uh, going back to the earlier part of the conversation and my point about that we built a system that incentivizes for people to do the wrong thing you know some of that is just for example you know you think about you know inequality and you think about the tax system you go capital is so crazy abundant and yet capital gains taxes are you know half the rate of the or you know they're actually not quite half the rate two you know three-fifths of the rate of taxes on income from labor you know how crazy is that you know i'd say Get rid of all taxes on labor. Fund, you know, maybe sure, maybe you want to keep Social Security because that's theoretically paying into a system, uh, or maybe you don't. Maybe you kind of go, we're going to actually get rid of the income tax uh, on labor. We're going to get rid of all those payroll taxes, and we're going to freaking finance this thing on the back of capital gains. You know, it's like capital gains should be fifty percent. You know, like slow the goddamn uh, you know craziness down, <laughs> and, and uh, you know instead of saying. Oh, we're going to keep fueling this thing, making it go higher, higher, higher. 
when we know we're we're heading for a cliff. Now, of course, you you, you know, realistically, you wouldn't do anything so brute force, but I do think that the understanding, you know, I think we should be doing a lot more in the way of Pigovian taxes on bad behavior. Again, you know, I see no, you know, you could have nuance besides rates too. You know, you think about going back to my Steve Jobs versus Carl Icahn, you know, why does Steve Jobs and Carl Icahn get the same capital gains tax rate? You know, one guy created this thing with value, you know, and the other guy just extracted value. He didn't create anything. Well, it'd be really interesting to see how this all the the antitrust kind of crackdown pans out. But I mean, you know, you have Lena Khan, who I've spoken to before. She's just been appointed to the FTC. Tim Wu, you know, people that have much more expansive ideas around just is there is a consumer being harmed in terms of price, yes or no. They're talking about privacy, ad loads, all this kind of just much more kind of holistic yeah. Is this company messing things up type of approach, which I think will be really interesting to see how that actually plays out in the market. I totally agree with that. And the thing that I would say, though, and I think it's probably too late for these companies, I guess what I think about all that is the companies have brought it on themselves mm-hmm. and they would do well to really try to get ahead of that. You know, and back when I wrote my book in 2016, you know, published in 2017, I wrote it for Silicon Valley to kind of say, you guys get ahead of this. You know, you're going to be the bad guys, you know, and you don't have to be, you know, it's a little bit like Walt's, you know, 1%, you know, just be a little less greedy, you know, and stop playing this game and it will go well for you. Yeah. And I, I think that we forget that there's really an opportunity if you can step back a little bit and say, how do we actually create value? Yeah. And we really have all of these incentives to, you know, increasingly you start doing things that are more and more user hostile. You know, like you look at the battle to capture the user, you know, and uh, suddenly, you know, Apple's playing the same game as Google and Facebook. (laughs) And, you know, despite all their stuff about privacy, they're still like trying to get you into their world, get you locked in so they can extract rents. And, uh, you know, again, that's that's kind of where where people like Mariana Mazzucato are just saying we just got to bring rents back to be a central part of the discussion. And I think, you know, an antitrust discussion that was focused on the ability to extract economic rents and who are they extracted from would be really, really interesting because you can extract rents. The fact that you can extract rents is the evidence of market power. Yep. As you say, as a few a few companies are extracting it all up and down the chain. That's right. Well, it's fascinating. I urge everybody to 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 read it. What's it called? The uh, the end of Silicon Valley as we know it. As we know it, and there's a very dramatic picture of buildings crashing to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, again, we've spent more time on the threat part of it and the and the you know the financialization and my concern about that than on the the real opportunity. I do think there's a lot in there also about this idea that these incredible opportunities in you know, in biomedical innovation, particularly the intersection with AI and, and in climate change. I think that there are massive, massive opportunities for investing in things that will really make a difference to people's lives. Well, I do think, especially if you have like, you know, Bill Gates 
writing this new book and being like, this is the next thing. This is, I think, you know, when he's on 60 Minutes telling the world in an interview, you know, this is urgent and needs to be invested in. And this is the next big problem we need to solve. I think it it, it does feel like there is a shift. Well, it also uh, probably an even bigger shift is the fact that, you know, Elon Musk is on and off the world's richest man. You kind of go, oh, th- that's going to signal to a lot of entrepreneurs. Well, how do I get some of that? Uh, you know, and, and that kind of goes back to this whole idea from Carlotta Perez that, that you know, bubbles have a role in the economy and there are productive bubbles. Mm. And I have to say, you know, the clubhouse bubble does not seem like, part, you know, whatever, does not seem like as productive a bubble as the Tesla bubble. I kind yeah. of am forgiving of the Tesla bubble in some ways. Well, it's funny. There's something, there's something like two dozen... I talk. I was talking to. I did a big piece on electric vehicles. There's something like two dozen kind of startups in one form or another, floating around the world right now. And he was like, this guy was like, you know, there's been one car startup since the 1960s that made it to mass production after uh, I think it was a Hyundai, and that was Tesla. And all the others failed. And there's just this list of hundreds, hundreds of companies that tried and failed. And now all of a sudden, you have this whole new generation who are like, to your point. Oh, okay, okay. We see the path now. We're going to try. Yeah. And, you know, associated with that is also, you know, I mean, Tesla's in rooftop solar, they're in batteries, they're, you know, so it's really across the board. I, I think areas like vertical farming, astonishing opportunities in agriculture to take, you know, when you go get a tour of a vertical farming facility, you realize, oh, they're taking all of this tech that was developed for, you know, tracking users and shifting their behavior. And applying it to plants, <laughs> you know, like monitor the hell out of it, adjust until they respond better. Yeah. You know, it's like it's growth. It's literally is growth hacking you know? <laughs> and taste and taste hacking. You exactly. Know? <laughs> exactly. Um, well, look, it's always a pleasure. I will leave you to uh, to the rest of your day. But uh, thank you for taking the time as usual. Oh, you're very welcome. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Tim as usual. I want to thank you all for listening, for your support, for your ratings, for your reviews, for the occasional just little bit of cash that shows up in my account, which is just the most amazing thing ever. It's really fantastic. So whoever has done that, I got like 10 bucks the other day. It was amazing to that little Acast kind of contributor feature. So thank you for that. And I will be back here next week as usual. In the meantime, if you want to hear more about a kind of really juicy Silicon Valley scandal, I would buy the Sunday Times this weekend. That's all I'm going to say. And that's it. Stay safe. Stay sane. And thank you again for listening. Bye-bye. listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more 
And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.